Good morning, Wellspring. We're reading together from 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Amen. We are continuing um, this series on First John. There's this week and next week is really the last messages on First John. And in particular, sort of narrowing it down, we're going to be talking about assurances on this second part and we're going to focus mostly on verses 18 and 19. I ask that we read the whole part because we talked last week about the first three assurances. Now we're going to talk about two more, and then next week, our last assurance. Many of you have heard of Fanny Crosby's story. She is the blind hymn writer who was blinded by a, a quack doctor when she was an infant, and when you consider her disability and all the many, many thousands of hymns that she wrote about God's faithfulness, you understand how blessed assurance is to her. In fact, that very hymn is written by her. And I want to read to you those words. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God born of his spirit, washed in his blood. Assurance for someone like Fanny Crosby who had lived her whole life in the 1800s, which was not a time where there was the American Disabilities Act. So for someone to be disabled in Fanny Crosby's time was very difficult. And yet what she so often wrote about, one of her most popular, most beautiful hymns is this idea of assurance how significant assurance is for our faith. Such assurance is so important, especially in times of trial, in upheaval, of difficulty. And we are living at such a time. And so how important it is for us to be able to heed John's words and listen to them and have them sink deep into our souls and to realize, realize how important it is. So last week, there were three assurances we covered. First, the assurance of eternal life. Second, the assurance of answered prayer. 
And third was the assurance from, uh, and from freedom, in freedom from sin's power. This week, two more. The assurance of identity as God's children, according to verse 18. And then second, the assurance of protection from the devil in verses 18 through 19. And we need those assurances more than ever before. So let's look at this fourth assurance we have as believers of Christ. We have the assurance of identity as God's children. I'd like to read that again in verse 18. We know, so that phrase is really the assurance phrase. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. I don't think we can speak enough about what John emphasizes time and time again throughout this letter is that we are God's children when we are born again, when we are born of God. He repeats this because he knows we're going to forget it, and we do. We forget it regularly because, first of all, we forget it. Second of all, he knows our adoption as God's children has an infinite worth because there is an infinite cost. And that cost, Paul writes about in Galatians 4.4, 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem. That's a really key verb, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So what Paul is saying is that there is an effect so that we might receive adoption as sons, but what caused that effect? To redeem. And redeem is a word, it's a, it's a financial word. It's a, a word of price. It means to buy back. So you think of a pawn shop. You go sell something of great value to you, an heirloom, because you need that money. You finally get the money, you go back to the pawn shop, and you redeem that heirloom. You buy it back. And so when Jesus is paying a price. He's buying back. He's paying something so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. John makes such a big deal out of adoption because he's saying there's a great price for your adoption. And so when you consider your, your status as a son or a daughter, you always have to remember that price. And he never, ever, the Bible, the New Testament, wants to make sure you never forget there was a price for you to enter into God's family. So we must never forget that cost. And also, that cost, that identity directly impacts the second part of verse 18. Children of God do not keep on sinning. And I want to stop there and consider three implications about why that is so significant to us. First, we are children of God for no other reason except Christ and his atoning work. John says, everyone who has been born of God. There are no limiting factors of God's choosing of us. There's nothing about us inherently that makes us more worthy or less worthy of God's choosing. That means that, for example, just think about your physical family. Every member of your family is unique from one another. Now, someone from the outside might say, oh, you look so similar or you, know, you have very similar traits. Oh, I could tell you're from your parents. And so, but 
you as a family, you know how different you are from one another. My wife, each one of my children, myself, we're all different in personality and physical size and shape and interests. You might not think we are, but we are. Yet, despite those distinctiveness and distinctions, we are still a family. That is to say that when times are hard, we come together. When one does well, we all rejoice together. Not perfectly, but we do so. And so too our spiritual family in Christ. Uh, We are of different races. We are of different personalities, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different experiences. We've experienced sin differently and grace differently. We experience so much differently. Our journey is different towards Christ. Where we are in the journey on the spectrum is different. But in Jesus, we're still one family. That's a common bond that is central to the church. Now that should impact how we treat one another, how we view one another, how we consider even in our minds, even in our thought processes, especially of people who are in Christ, but also of those who are not in Christ. Christians should be the most on the forefront of treating every person that we encounter with dignity and respect. Because we believe Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We believe that every human being is created by God as an image bearer. Every person. That includes our physical characteristics, our spiritual, our psychological, all of it intertwined together is in the image of God. And so therefore, when we look at a person, we don't define them by, well, are they similar to me? Do they... Are they raised with the same intellect or the same experiences or the same skin tone? We are always considering our utmost identity, which is children of God. Again, the price was paid. It was such an infinite cost that that has to be the fundamental way that we understand each other. And we look around in our society and our culture today and we see the impact when that is not the case. When we don't view people on the basis of the fact that we before God are created all in his image, when that doesn't happen, there's chaos. There is injustice. There is a real inability to see who God is and who we are as his creation. So that word everyone is an important word that everyone is a son and daughter. When we're in Christ and it is not dependent on anything of what we look like, one of the blessings that we have when it comes to missions is that you get a chance to go to all sorts of different people and different cultures. And you get to enter into homes. You get to see people who speak a different language, who look vastly different from you, who have a very different upbringing. I always find, I've always remarked this with uh, numerous times where we go overseas with different missions teams, is how uh, when you travel abroad, let's say, and you're, you're on a tour or you're sightseeing, yes, it's really great. You look at different architecture, you hear different languages, you eat different foods, wonderful. But there's always a limit to that. But whenever we're going and ministering and meeting brothers and sisters in Christ. And they really are brothers and sisters. Again, cross-culturally of different colors, of different languages, of different... And when you go and experience life 
with somebody in their home. I tell you, there is no tour, no, um, no amount of money you could pay that could match what it means to be with another brother or sister in Christ of a different ethnicity, of a different language, being in their home, eating their food, um, seeing their life together as a family. It is beyond precious. Only when we come to see people as God has created them to be can we realize actually our own identity as sons and daughters because you start seeing family. I mean, from, you know, from Las Pulgas, Mexico, to Villafranca, Spain, to Zimbabwe and Malawi, to parts of Asia and Thailand and Singapore, um, there's just a dramatic picture of God's people. We need to see beyond our moment. And we've mentioned this many times, but as difficult of a season this is for our nation, for each other, for the church, it's an important time. We're either going to run away from it or we're going to run towards it. And we're going to see and proclaim Christ in the midst of it and not feel overwhelmed by fear and worry. So we are together. So this first implication is so important. We're together solely on the basis of Christ's atoning work. But that unity is so central to defining us and giving us a real sense of vision and hope. Another implication of our adoption is that it assumes change and growth because we do not keep on sinning, which actually implies that we still do sin, that we're not perfected. We do not keep on sinning, but John, we know, isn't saying that we never sin. We, we He's written a lot about the fact that if we say we are not sinners, then we're a liar and the truth of God is not in us. So John's not saying we never sin, but he's saying that in Christ, we do not keep on sinning as though it's no big deal, as though it's meaningless, which also implies that we're on this growth curve. We're being perfected, but we're not perfect and we're changing and growing. That assumes that we actually still have room to grow. That means that the way that we view things now, we're not perfectly there yet. And we should always be humble enough to recognize that towards one another. It means that we should be more gracious because everyone's changing, those around us, those in the church, and me and you. We're all changing. We're all growing. It should lead to humility. It should lead to openness. It should meet to a heart that's willing to listen and not always just simply lecture. It should also make us unsurprised when people fail us, when they mess up. Remember, we've been bought with a price. That price, at least as long as we're on this side of heaven, means that we're being transformed. It's a process, though. It's called sanctification. And because we're all on that journey, it should lead to more grace. I hope we understand that our adoption shows us that. Thirdly is that, similar to the first implication, but presses us a little bit further, is that our Heavenly Father loves us 
And because of Jesus' atoning work, there is a love behind God's love for us. John made this so clear in 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is to say, there is nothing so good or so evil in us that stops God from loving us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves us solely on the basis of what Jesus did at the cross. But because of that, his love is profusive. It is never-ending. It is abundant. And until we realize that, we're never going to be free in our world. I want to illustrate this. One seminary professor was wrestling with the truths of the gospel. And in one session, he had a colleague in his doctor of ministry class. A doctor of ministry class is a class filled with pastors and church leaders. So we're talking about people who obviously know Christ. So one of his colleagues suggested that he break up the class into three sections and have each one of them share the gospel with one another. And so this seminary professor was stunned by that suggestion. He was saying, why? Why do that? Did he think that some in this class were non-Christians? He then went on to explain that there's a false assumption that the gospel is only for non-Christians. That is to say that something Christians graduate from is the gospel. You, you first share the gospel with non-believers, and then you move on to bigger and better things, more advanced theological topics. What we don't do is break up into small groups and share the gospel with one another. If we had time, I would want everyone to do that right now. Share the gospel with one another. And you might think, is it because I'm trying to train everyone to be evangelists? No. I actually think you become an evangelist because you believe in the gospel. It's just a part of who you are. But we don't share the gospel enough, not with non-Christians. We don't share the gospel enough with Christians, with one another, with those of us who are in Christ. Because the goal is not to convert people to Jesus The goal is to show people what you have when you are saved and why that is so significant for me and for you as a believer of Christ. And by doing so, when a non-Christian actually sees the depth of how convinced, how important the gospel is to your own soul, that Christ has saved you apart from anything you have done, but because of his great mercy, that is a testimony of God's grace that leads people to himself people who do not know Christ, to know and to share that you've been purchased with an infinite price and it assures you of an extravagant love by a loving, gracious Father. That's what the world needs to hear. That's what each one of us needs to hear. So that's the assurance that we have as being sons and daughters. The second assurance is, and this fifth assurance, is that we have protection from the devil and his schemes. Verse 18 and 19 says this, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The way John wrote verse 18, it almost is a little odd because the way he said it, but he who was born of God protects him. The NIV says, keeps him safe. 
And the question becomes, who is the he and who is the him? But he who was born of God protects him. There's a, a significance behind John's wording. He didn't do that accidentally and say, oh man, I messed up. I shouldn't have said it that way. It would have, it's so unclear. Rather, John is really trying to say that the he who was born of God, it, it sort of has a dual purpose to it. On the one hand, it refers to us, that we who have been born of God. That is to say that we are able to, we have a responsibility to guard our hearts, to protect us. But obviously it doesn't stop there because what also happens while we have this responsibility is that we can rest assured that Jesus is the one who is protecting us, that he is the one who is born of God, that he protects, he keeps us safe. And John didn't just pull that out of nowhere. He heard it quite often from Jesus himself. Listen to John 17, Jesus' high priestly prayer, verses 12 and 15. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Also, John 10, 28 through 29, I give them eternal life. And they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We never need to doubt that God is our hiding place. He is our fortress. He is our deliverer. We know that when Jesus saved us, at that point, he's not going to let us go. Not even our own sinfulness, our, our own rebellion will turn us away from him that he will keep us and he will not let us go. Do you see why then when John wrote this in verses 16 and 17, why it's, it's so promising to us and why we need to respond similarly. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. If we know when Jesus saves us that he saves us to the point where no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand. When John then says, if you see someone committing a sin not leading to death, and by the way, we don't know if someone who is sinning, if that is ultimately a hardened heart even unto death, we don't know. So what John is saying essentially is, you need to pray, ask, ask that God will give this person life. And because we ourselves know so clearly from John that when we trust in him, that Jesus is, is absolutely secure in protecting us, he will not let us go. So therefore, we shouldn't give up on people, no matter how far you think they are gone. It, it says more about us than it says about Jesus, that we think well, you know what, they, they resist the Lord, they're angry at God all the time, their heart is so hardened, there is no way that this person will turn to Christ, and so we give up. John's saying, if anyone sees that this person is committing a sin, not leading to death, ask. God will give him life. So my friends, no one is too far gone, because we were once too far gone. 
if you think that someone is so far off from God that there's no hope for them, you're not understanding what it costs to save you. So therefore, what John is saying is pray. Don't give up. Keep on praying. Do not yield to the enemy's temptations to say give up. It's no, no use. They're so far gone. They'll never turn to Christ. There's no hope. That is Satan. That is the devil's work. Instead, we need to remember we've been saved like that. No one is too far gone for God's grace. And we also have this assurance that Jesus is the one who keeps us safe ultimately. The evil one does not touch him. Now, this cannot mean that the devil has no power at all to tempt or even to injure or even to kill Christians. Because the next verse makes it clear that this is not the case. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus also said this about Christians in the world, John seventeen fifteen. I read it earlier. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. John says that the world belongs to the devil. It is his temporary domain, limited by God's ultimate sovereign power. But as long as the devil still exists, it is still his domain. And in his domain, he casts doubt and fear and anxiety and all sorts of evils. He can injure. As Jesus said, he can steal, kill, and destroy. As long as he's in this world, he can do that to our bodies. But we have to recall that Jesus he himself did not avoid this world. In fact, he came to it. The word became flesh, John says in John 1.14, and dwelt amongst us. He didn't come to escape the world. He came fully to be in the world. And because he did that, he does not call us to leave it. He doesn't say, hey, in the midst of all the troubles, build a bunker. And there are a number of wealthy people right now who are building these bunkers. And I was reading an article, it was about COVID bunkers. And it wasn't about, what the article was saying is that these billionaires weren't building COVID bunkers to avoid the plague. They were building it to avoid the consequences of the plague, the rioting that will happen. It's interesting. That was way before the riots and the, all the demonstrations and the protests happened. And as you were receiving alerts, oh, you know, there's going to be a curfew. And you hear of Walnut Creek being looted and all these things. Is, was there a, a creeping sense of fear coming into your soul? Well, it's not as though the Bible never spoke of it. Jesus makes it so clear. John says, you're not supposed to run away. You're not supposed to just try to find a hill or a little, build a bunker and say, I need to get away because it's so dangerous now. Instead, it says that Christians, we don't escape to Yosemite in the backwoods. Jesus could have done that himself, right? He's God. He didn't have to come to a world where he's going to suffer. But he did come to this world to suffer. He didn't ask the Father, Father, take me out of the world. He went there because he wanted to save people. And what is the church supposed to do in such times? We're supposed to be the salt and light. 
We're supposed to be people who also, like our Savior, like our Master, like our Lord, is willing to walk alongside people who are suffering. Not take ourselves out from it, but run into it so that we can be the salt and light. John Piper tells the story of the village of Miango, Nigeria. There's an SIM guest house and a small church called Kirk Chapel. Behind the chapel is a small cemetery with 56 graves. 33 of those 56 graves were the bodies of missionary children. The stones read Ethel Arnold, September 1st, 1928 to September 2nd, 1928. Barbara J. Swanson, 1946 to 1952. Eileen Louise Whitmoyer, May 6th, 1952 to July 3rd, 1955. And so on and so on. This was the cost of taking the gospel to Nigeria so that people in Nigeria could hear Christ. Missionary Charles White tells uh, the story about visiting this little graveyard and ends it with this really important sentence. He says, the only way we can understand the graveyard at Miango is to remember that God also buried his son in the mission field. So we're not supposed to run and be afraid. Rather, run towards and show the love of Jesus Christ to our broken and hurting world. So then you might be wondering, what in the world does John mean when he says the devil can't touch us? Because it totally sounds like the devil can touch us. He uses the word touch in this verse one other time, John does, in John chapter 20, verse 17. And listen to what, how he uses it. He uses it uh, when describing what Jesus says to Mary after he is resurrected. Do not cling And by the way, that word cling is the word touch, the same word in the Greek. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. The touching that John refers to by Satan that he cannot do to you is the clinging, the holding back, the grasping, the the keeping away. You know, here's... Here's the false idea that we have of us, Satan, and Jesus. It's sort of like a tug of war. Where that, you know that little, um, when you have a tug of war, two sides, and that you tie a cloth in the middle? And I think so many times we think Jesus is on one side and Satan's on the other, and we're both pulling, on, and Jesus pulling, Satan is pulling, and we're stuck in the middle, and we're hoping, Jesus, I hope you win this war. I hope you win the tug of war because I don't want to be by Satan. This verse is telling us Jesus has won. It's, there's no tug of war. You're already on his side. There's no, he, Satan cannot cling to you. He's not going to hold you back. This world, in its very, very short time that you have to live in it, that's it's already been dealt with. Like, eternity's yours in Christ. And so therefore, you don't ever have to worry about Satan pulling you away from that. He's already won. You will be with him in paradise. But as long as you're in this world, we're going to talk a lot about Satan in this next series on um, spiritual warfare. He can fling his flaming arrows, his flaming darts at you of every type in every direction. He will deceive you. He will prod you to doubt, to be fearful, 
to be afraid when you hear news, when you read the news. He's going to make you feel angry and envious. He's going to put you into depression. He's going to make you feel sorrowful, grievous. He's going to make you sin sometimes. He's going to prompt you to turn away from God. He wants you to be the most fearful, miserable, angry, sorrowful Christian possible. Why? Because he knows you're already in Christ. No one can snatch you out of his hand. But he knows that the best evangelist for Satan is the miserable, angry, frustrated, sorrowful Christian there is. You're a Christian, but you're just not happy. You're worried. You're anxious. You're angry. You're irritable. You're self-centered. Still a believer, you're still going to be with the Lord. But it's possible to be that way. And that person is an evangelist for the devil. Because you see, we're not supposed to escape. We're supposed to be the salt and light. Two of our gospel partners, uh, George Sneeman and Gabi Torrent, there's something the two of them have that I just appreciate so much is that they run into the fire. They run towards where everyone, you know, everyone is running this way. They run towards the fire. They run in and they both go and say, when it's hardest, that's when it's an opportunity for the gospel to shine. I'm thankful that, like for example, Jim and Sarah Choi, Jim is, you know, he's in law enforcement, but every Saturday they're going to City Impact. They're going to the Tenderloin. They're caring for um, people who are suffering. And what a contrast to the way the world thinks about law enforcement and people of different race. It, it is possible in Christ, but what shines forth is Jesus, not a, um, a political spectrum or a, an agenda Christ has to pierce through and a lot of it's going to take Christians boldly going and being a voice of peace, of grace, of speaking out against injustice, of all kinds, and not just staying silent, of actively moving and changing. But the devil would rather have us fearful, reading the news, angry, angry at everyone and anyone, just simmering, distressed, and doing nothing. That's what the devil would have of us. I want to just close with a biblical application and a conclusion illustration. Um, We can have even a great profession of following Jesus at difficult times. Remember Peter in Luke chapter 22? Peter said, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Remember Jesus' response? He burst his bubble big time. I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. It just, what a shock that must have been to Peter. Here Peter is saying, I'm going to do this, right? But there's something that happened right before those two verses. It's actually the, literally the two immediate uh, previous verses. Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
It's right after that that Peter says, I'm ready to go with you to prison. Satan is doing all that he can to deter and distract and damage God's plan. He wants to discourage us. And he will use any method possible, including our own arrogance as well as our fears. He can take a, I'm going to do this for you. And he can also take denial of Christ in the same person. And Satan wants to do that. But one thing we know is that Jesus is saying, Satan is demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, when Peter, as we know, he comes out of all that, strengthen your brothers. And the book of Acts is all about Peter strengthening his brothers. Same person. What a myriad of emotions of arrogance to denial to brokenness and then to restoration, forgiveness. Peter's story shows us that Satan can be involved. He can do tremendously terrible things, but he cannot touch you. He cannot grab you. You are Jesus's forever and ever. While Harry Ironside was the pastor of Moody Memorial Church in Chicago, an elderly man confessed his desperate struggle with the assurance of salvation. He wanted some proof, definite proof of his conversion, something that would show that he really has true faith in Christ. And Ironside says this, suppose that you had a vision of an angel who told you your sins were forgiven. Would that be enough to rest on? Yes, the man replied. I think it would. An angel should be right. And Ironside said, but suppose that on your deathbed, Satan came to you and said, I was that angel transformed to deceive you. What would you say? The man was at a loss for words. Ironside explained that God had given that man something more reliable and authoritative than the voice of an angel. He gave his one and only son who died for our sins, who rose from the grave, and he gave his word to show that to be true. There is no greater assurance that you can have than to know that Jesus Christ, God the Son, paid an infinite price so that he could exhibit to you the extravagant love of the Father so that you would never forget that you are his son, his daughter, when he you trust in him. And though Satan try to sift you like wheat, he cannot touch you. God has grabbed hold of you. He seized you. He's brought you to himself. And no one will ever snatch you out of his hand. With that, you can go forward. We're going to respond to that reality with communion. We're also going to respond in song by singing the wondrous words, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.